Would you please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy? 2 Timothy chapter 3. We are starting a new series, a new preaching series, and you can see the title. I entitled this series, From Creation to New Creation, an Overview of the Bible. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at the Scriptures as a whole. And today... And next Lord's Day, we're going to be looking at the premises, the foundation for studying the Scriptures. So 2 Timothy, and if you can stand, please stand. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Let's start in verse 12. Here's the word of the Lord. Indeed, that's certain. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, what? Persecuted. Take hold of God's promises for you, brothers and sisters. A lot of times we don't like these promises, but it's right here. You know, sometimes you get those books with the promises of God, and you never find these ones here. So it's right here. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Oh, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. He's talking to Timothy. And have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learn it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred letters, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You may be seated. Lord, we ask once again for your help. We desperately need you to work in us and through us. Jesus... As you told us, we openly proclaim that apart from you, we can do nothing. We cannot listen, we cannot understand, I cannot proclaim in a faithful way. So please help us, Holy Spirit. Pray that your word would grow deep in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. The Bible certainly is the foundation of our lives. Everything that we do flows out of the Scriptures. Think about the Christian life and how central the Word of God is. God uses the Scriptures to accomplish His work of salvation. So Romans chapter 10, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the what? The Word of Christ. Salvation comes from hearing the preaching of God's Word. The Bible, the Word of God sanctifies us. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your what? Your Word is truth. Our songs, the hymns are all grounded in the Scriptures because we are called to sing the Scriptures. Let the Word of God Dwell richly in you. 
And then Paul goes on to tell, singing, praises and hymns. Our prayers, we don't come up with our own prayers. If we decide to come up with our own prayers, we are being, we are creating idols. Because worship is what? Obeying the Lord. So even our prayers are Bible-grounded, Bible-centered, amen? That's why Jesus taught us how to pray. That's why we have the prayers of Paul. So we learn how to pray. So we are praying biblical prayers. Think about the happiest and saddest times in our lives. Weddings. Birth of babies, funerals. In all these occasions, we have what? The Word of God being proclaimed. Verses of the Scriptures being declared. Our whole lives are centered, ground, founded in the Scriptures. And yet, sadly, many, many Christians have very little knowledge of the Bible itself. And let me clarify here what I mean by knowledge of the Bible because that's very relative. That's such an infinite treasure of knowledge and wisdom that nobody can fully grasp it. But what I mean knowledge of the Bible is lack of knowledge of the coherence of the Bible, the unity of the Bible, how the Bible is structured. For so many Christians, the Bible is just like a junkyard with all random parts, and you've got to go and find whatever is going to fit you. That's how so many Christians see the Bible, a junkyard. You've got to go and, and just keep digging until you find something that's good for you. Others see the Bible as the magic eight ball. Do you remember the magic eight ball? Fortune telling, you need a decision. That's why they run to the Bible to find a Bible verse. It has a quick answer for all your problems. Should they take this job? Should they marry this person? Should they move to that place? And they're always looking for a text there to bring the solution for their issues. Others see the Bible as a manual for life, just a manual for life. They see the Scriptures as full of pithy sayings and stories that are written primarily to help you be a better person. It's basically, basically a collection of wise ideas to help you be a better you. So they see the stories of the Bible and the text of the Bible outside the context of the covenantal context, apart from the canonical context, and they just see the stories of the Bible as just wonderful stories for you to be a braver person, a more honest person. A stronger person. Oh, does the Bible teach us these things? Yes. But is the Bible that? No. Others see the Bible as a love letter. So they talk about the Bible as a love letter from God to me. What happens when you have a love letter from God to you? You become the center of the Scriptures. And then you're always trying to find... Something that's going to touch your affections and emotions since it's a love letter. You don't want a love letter with bad news towards you. Does the Bible have love letters? Yes, 
it has letters. But is the Bible a love letter? I would say no. As we are going to see, actually the Bible is a covenantal document. It's a covenantal document. And much of the preaching that takes place in so many churches in America, also, they don't help Christians to see and understand the coherence and the unity of the Bible. Most sermons are digestible bites of the Scripture out of the context in order to give some relevant application to people. And in our Reformed circles, for so many, the Bible became a book of systematic theology. So the constant preaching through the wonderful confessions of faith, so the constant preaching through the Westminster Confession, the 1689, the Canons of Dort on Sundays do not help the people to see, the people of God to see the coherence and the unity and the beauty of the Scriptures. Lifeway Research, they published an article, a research, about how much of the Bible Americans read, and I think it's very revealing. It says 22% read a little bit each day in a systematic approach. And then the question would be, what do you mean by systematic approach? Meaning you read Psalms every day? You read Proverbs every day? Is that systematic? You just read the New Testament? You just read the Gospel? So that would be good to know what they mean by systematic. A third, 35%, never pick up the Bible at all. While 30% look up things in the Bible when they need to. 19% reread their favorite parts, while 17% flip open the Bible and read a passage at random. A quarter, 27%, read sections suggested by others, while 16% say they look things up to help others. And this type of pattern sadly invades the church. And what we have is a bunch of people knowing a verse here and there. But ultimately, these verses are not in the context. And do you know what is a text out of context? A pretext? It's nothing. It's nothing. I remember... For heaven's sake, in one of the episodes, there was the vicar, and he's going to visit a parishioner. And this parishioner hates the vicar, the minister there. And as he comes, the parishioner quotes two Bible verses to the minister. The first one, he reads Matthew 27, 5. Judas went and hanged himself. And then he quotes Luke 10, 37. Go and do thou likewise. We laugh, but that's how so many read the Bible. Verses out of context, in the hope that these verses are going to help them somehow. But the Scriptures, honestly, they have no power, no power whatsoever, apart from its context. If the text is not understood in its context, it has absolutely no power. No matter how often, how frequently, how strongly, how enthusiastically you quote that verse. We saw that in Philippians. Bartholomew and Gohin, they write the following in their book, The Dream of Scriptures. 
Many of us have read the Bible as if it were merely a mosaic of little bits. Theological bits, moral bits, historical critical bits, sermon bits, devotional bits. But when you read the Bible in such a fragmented way, we ignore its divine author's intention to shape our lives through the Bible's main story. If we allow the Bible to become fragmented, it's in danger of being absorbed into so, in whatsoever other story is shaping our culture. That's exactly all we see today. We let the story of our culture shape the story of the Bible instead of letting the story of the Bible shape us. And it will thus cease to shape our lives as it should. Hence, the unity of the Scripture is no minor, no, no minor matter. A fragmented Bible may actually produce theologically orthodox, morally upright, warmly pious idol worshipers. Yes, idol worshipers, because we are taking the Scripture out of context and trying to make it say what God does not want that you say. And that's actually a satanic device. Satan is the champion in doing these things. So, Jesus says in Mark 12, that's Mark 12, 24. Remember, he's having this argument with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And he says, is this, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And for Christ, there is an inseparable connection between the power of God and knowing, knowing the Scriptures, understanding the, the Scriptures. Oh, those, those leaders, they, they knew a lot of verses here and there. They could throw a lot of verses out of context. And that's why Jesus rebukes them. We don't want to be ignorant of the Scriptures because it's inseparable from God's power. And God's power is revealed in the proper understanding of the Scriptures. So, here's the outline of this morning's sermon. First, you're going to look at the purpose of this whole series. And then you're going to look at the priority. Why is it important to have a Bible overview? And then we're going to start the primary premises or the primary presuppositions for studying the Scriptures. Today you're going to look just at the inspiration, but next Lord's Day you're going to be looking at illumination, inerrancy, and authority of the Scriptures. And then we move to the canon, and then we can move on to see the Bible as a whole. But we, we, we must have these premises, these foundation aspects laid before us first. So the purpose of this series, what is the purpose of these sermons? Is my, my goal is to help you to behold and delight yourself in the beauty and the majesty of the coherence of the Bible itself. The Bible is a beautiful, wonderful book, one book. And the more you know this book, the more you see the coherence, the more you see God's perfection in uniting all these stories, I tell you, your heart enlargers, your heart becomes bigger and bigger. You love Christ more. You love His holiness more. So, that's my, my goal. That 
as we study this long story, that our hearts would be enlarged. Love Christ more and more. So the purpose is to enable and empower you to behold the beauty, majesty, and glory of the Bible as one coherent story. I hope that we can see as we work through these scriptures, not only the immediate context, but the larger context. Not only, okay, I know that this text is in Romans chapter 8, so I need to read what comes before, what comes after. Not only that, but where is Romans in these scriptures? What is the covenantal context? That's what I hope we can see as we are walking through the Scriptures. Second, the priority, the importance of a theological overview of the Scriptures. I firmly, and I believe that most of you firmly believe that expository preaching is the healthiest proclamation for the local church. Expository preaching is what we do here. Get a book and we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, basically word by word sometimes. And I believe that's the healthiest. Not the only way, but the healthiest way for a, a diet in the life of the local church. To be exposed to God's Word. It requires you to understand the immediate context. But sometimes, just walking book by book, we can be stuck with just that. Think about a forest. And if you're a biologist and you're studying one tree in that forest, that's basically expository preaching. And we are just focusing on that tree, looking at all the elements of that tree and the bugs that come to that tree and the birds that come to that tree the leaves and the fruits. But a lot of times we need to step back and say, no, 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 I want to see the whole forest and get that beautiful picture. It's one thing to be just focused on one tree. It's a whole other thing when you see the beauty of the forest and you know the connection of the trees. And when you have this overview of the whole forest, the Peculiar trees become even more beautiful. Or, I think it was last week, Rachel and I and Hannah went hiking. And as you are hiking, and I don't know how people enjoy hiking. <laughs> and they deceived me, right, man? I thought it was going to be a 30-minute hike. It was a three-hour hike. And Rick is always inviting me to go hike. Let's <laughs> see how much you love me. <laughs> so think, think about hiking, and you're hiking, and honestly, as we were hiking, the whole focus is just that mountain where you're going. You're looking at where you're stepping so you don't break an ankle, and, and especially carrying a baby, you have, be, you have to be extra careful as you are hiking that mountain, and, and your focus is right there, things around you, the people who are with you. But once you get to the top, you can see the mountain range, and it's beautiful, beautiful. So that's similar to having an overview of the Scriptures. We must, we must see how beautiful it is from the top. 
And that helps us when you have this understanding. The whole Bible enables us to answer questions like, do the book of Jonah, Ruth, and Chronicles have anything connecting them? Somebody asked you, what is the connection between Ruth and Chronicles and Jonah? Besides the, oh, it's in the Bible. Is there a theme connecting them? How and why did Daniel show up inside the palace of Nebuchadnezzar? Why was Daniel there? We always hear about Daniel. But why is he there? Is that connected somehow to the Exodus or to Deuteronomy? Oh, yes. How about Noah's Ark? Has Noah's Ark anything to do with Moses being a baby? Is there any similarity between Noah's Ark and Moses as a baby? Has the Temple of Solomon anything to do with the Garden of Eden? Or just random accounts that are not connected at all? And if you say yes, how is the Temple of Solomon connected to the Garden of Eden? Why does Luke tell us that Jesus lifted up his hands and blessed his disciples right as he is ascending in the cloud into heaven? Does he have to is there anything connected to numbers? The high priest raising his hands, blessing, going to the Holy of Holies. How about Psalm 23? Is that just a nice psalm about a shepherd and we are his sheep? Or is it connected to the Exodus? To quote the drum of scripture once again, the author says, The Bible narrates the story of God's journey on that long road of redemption. It's a unified and progressively unfolding drama of God's action in history for the salvation of the whole world. The Bible is not a mere jumble of history, poetry, lessons in morality and theology, comforting promises, guiding principles and commands. Instead, it is fundamentally coherent. Every part of the Bible, each event, book, character, command, prophecy, poem, must be understood in the context of the one story line. And that one story line, Paul calls the whole counsel of God. That's how Paul calls this one long, beautiful, coherent story. The whole counsel of God. So Paul tells the elders in Ephesus, he says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you, what? The whole counsel of God. Is Paul saying that he preached every single chapter of Ezekiel when he was there? He preached the whole counsel of God. Does it mean that he preached every single chapter of Genesis when he was there? No. It means that Paul could trace the whole storyline from Genesis to Revelation in a coherent way. And you see how he's applying the text in his letters. It's always understood in the context of the coming of Christ, the new covenant. So that's what Paul is saying. And we, as Christians, must, must have a grasp in the whole counsel of God. Not only books independently, but how the 
All these stories fit together. They fit together to form one large story. We have this responsibility, brothers and sisters. And we are not in parts of North Korea where people have a piece of the Bible to read for the rest of their lives. To whom much is given, much is required. We all here have many Bibles at home. Commentaries, books to read. And we have no excuse to be ignorant of the whole counsel of God. Amen? And moving on, here we come to what I want to talk, especially today. The primary premises or presuppositions. Every person has presupposition. They all have premises when they come to everything. Everything you do, you're coming with premises and presuppositions. Amen? Nobody's neuter. It's not like, oh, I'm completely neutral. I, I don't have any presupposition at all. Now, we all carry with us. The question is if they're right or wrong. If they're grounded in God's revelation or not. So, what I want to do is just to lay down on the ground the foundation for our understanding of the Scriptures. And that's in our confession of faith. If you go to the statement of faith in our church, those things are all there, what we believe about the Scriptures. And the first one is the, uh, that I want to talk about today is the inspiration of the Bible. The Bible is inspired by God, meaning that the Bible has divine origin. Some people don't like the word inspiration, but there is no way to get out of that. It has been with us for a long time, so that's what I'm going to call the inspiration of the Scriptures. Think about the work of creation. It's marvelous, amen? The work of creation is beautiful. The mountains, the birds, the sea, the whales. Night, day, rain, wind. Psalm 19, the first part of Psalm 19 talks about what we call natural revelation. Or Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about that also. And then you think about the works of God throughout history. His majestic works of, in history. Think about the Reformation. What a wonderful work of God in history. But all these things are not enough. They're not enough. We need God to explain to us what's taking place. We need God to explain to us what He's doing, why there is a creation, why He works in history. God's ways, I have here, God's ways are not man's ways, and we need His own explanation for His actions. We need divinely inspired interpre interpretations that explain the saving works of God in and for humanity. We need God to speak, we need God to preserve, and we need God to transmit His words. It's not enough just to see things. Like someone who never heard the gospel and see a cross, and, oh, you have a piece of wood in the vertical and the horizontal. Oh, that's wonderful. What are you going to do? Is that beat someone? We need explanation. We need God to explain His actions. And the beautiful thing is that we have, we have a speaking God. 
That's where comes the Trinity, the importance of having a triune God. That from eternity, this triune God communicate between the three persons. It's a communicating God that we have. He speaks. The Bible is God's Word, not only that it is about God, but belongs to God. It's God explaining what He, is, what he has been doing, what He's doing, what He has done. We need that. There is a necessity of inspiration. We need God to speak to us and interpret what's taking place. Amen? I don't know if you ever thought about that, but nature is not enough. Symbols are not enough. We need God to explain. We need God to speak and tell us and communicate with us. And that's exactly what we have right here. You think about Jesus. He is the champion of the champions. And his view of the Old Testament, the scriptures that he had, and he always held the scriptures as coming from God himself, as inspired by God, we could say. Jesus verified and claimed that the Old Testament scriptures were words of God's Spirit. So Jesus recognized the tripartite of the Old Testament. Remember, he, he, quote, he talks about the Old Testament having the Torah, the law, the prophets, the writings. So he's embracing the whole canon of the Old Testament. Jesus quoted repeatedly from the Old Testament. Jesus accepted the Old Testament as, as a historical document referring to specific events. So he talks about the first marriage in the Garden of Eden. He talks about the flood. He talks about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the burning bush with Moses. Jesus talks about individuals believing that they truly existed. He talks about Adam, Eve, Abel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Moses, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, as historical people who truly lived. In Mark 12, 36, Jesus is about to quote Psalm 110, 110. And so Mark 12, 36, Jesus says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. Listen to this. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. What is he saying? The Spirit of God was there working in and through David. And then he goes on to, goes on to quote Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Peter, the Apostle Peter, he writes, Knowing this, that's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's... And I have a hard time with own interpretation because that's not... The, the context has nothing to do with interpretation here. He's talking about creation of the Scriptures. It's a very unique word in the Greek. It's the only time we have in the New Testament. But if you read the context, it has nothing to do with interpretation. It's about creation, fabrication of the Scriptures. So I would change that and say, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own fabrication or creation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But man spoke from God as they were carried along by whom? The Holy Spirit. The word carried along 
was used in ancient times and even in the scriptures for ships being carried along by the wind. Those massive vessels being carried along by the wind. And that's what Peter is painting here, the writers of the Old Testament as these vessels. Each one was a vessel with their own peculiar personalities, but being carried along by the Holy Spirit as they are writing the Scriptures. The clearest texts about the inspiration of the Scriptures that they come from God Himself is 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, he's talking to Timothy, continuing what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the holy letters. And the picture here is of Timothy as a little boy. His mom was Jewish, learning how to read and write from the holy letters, from the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, Theopneustos. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. First of all, notice that, Bi that Paul calls the Bible the sacred writings. That the Bible is the holy letters. Meaning all the letters in the Bible are holy. The Bible is the only book that is fully and truly devoted and consecrated to God in every single aspect. Because it comes from God Himself. And then he says that the whole, the scripture as a whole. So you have the writings and then you have the scripture. The body of all these writings is inspired by God. And inspired doesn't mean that the Bible is inspiring, just like many books. Have you read an inspiring book lately? You know, and you know what they're talking about. Something that was exciting and kept, make you keep going and and that's how so many people see the Bible, as inspiring. Yes, the Bible is inspiring, but it's much more than that. It's inspired. That's what Paul is telling us. Theo, what is Theo? God, theology. And then you have another word there, nustos, nustos, from we have pneumonia, the air, the breath, the spirit. And that's what Paul is saying, that the Scripture, the whole gathering of all those books, they are the product of God's breath. Very similar to what Peter said. Do you remember? They're carried along by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Wind, the Holy Breath of God. And the same that Paul is doing right here. Therefore, we believe that the Bible originated from God, was given by God as His saving speech. So, Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellen, it's a wonderful book, God's Kingdom Through God's Covenants. 
They say, in agreement with historic Christianity, we affirm that Scripture is God's Word written, the product of God's mighty action through the Word and by the Holy Spirit, whereby human authors freely wrote exactly what God intended to be written and without error. The Bible is not only inspiring, but inspired by God. Another scholar, he says, Matthew Barrett, very good book too, God's Word alone. He says, the inspiration of Scripture refers to the act whereby the Holy Spirit came upon the authors of Scripture, causing them to write exactly what God intended while simultaneously preserving each author's style and personality. The supernatural work of the Holy Spirit upon the human author, authors means that the author's words are God's words and therefore reliable, trustworthy, and authoritative. So the Bible is, and that's very important to keep in mind, Theonustos, God breathed. There are two major things in the Bible that receive the breath of God. One, right in the beginning of the Bible, do you remember who receives the breath of God? Adam. What is Adam before the breath of God? A pile of dirt. Until he receives the breath of God. And brings him life. And the Bible is the only living book because it receives the breath, the Spirit of God himself. Hebrews chapter 1. Let me go here. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, God spoke, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And that's beautiful. The unity of man and God walking together in the writings of the Bible. Bruce Waltke, he says, the divine and the human agencies complemented, not competed with one another. The human authors and the divine author, they're not competing, but complementing one another. That's what we call concursive work. There's a concursive, God and man. Benjamin, Benjamin Warfield, he says that God was working not by superseding the activities of the human authors, but confluently with them togethers them so that the scriptures are the joint product of divine and human activities, both of which penetrate them at every point. Every single dot is this mix of man and God together, divine and human, and without error. Second Samuel 23, David says, the, the author says, Now these are the last words of David, and then David speaks. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my what? Tongue. Wait a second. Are these the words of David or of the Spirit of God? Wait, the author say, these are the words of David, and then David begins by saying, these are the words of the Holy Spirit that he placed in my tongue. Is that the words of David or the words of God? Yes, yes, both, right here. 
what we call organic inspiration, God working together. God used human persons to communicate with us in a fully personal way. Another word for this is theanthropic, the theanthropic nature of the Bible. Remember, theos, God, what is anthropos? Man, anthropology, the study of man. So you have this divine and man together. And it's limited, but I think it's fine as we understand the limitations of the, the metaphor, but it's very similar to Jesus himself, who is fully God and fully what? Man. Fully God, fully man. And I'll, I'll be clear, there, there is a limitation to this illustration, but I think that there is some that we can learn here. Just like Christ, the incarnate Word, fully divine, fully human, the Scriptures also fully divine, fully human. And why is it important to think about these things and know that? Okay, so what? Yeah. Fully divine, fully human, so what? Yeah. And think about why we have so, so many different authors with so many different styles. Because God is using each man in a very specific way. That's what brings the diversity of the Scriptures and at the same time the unity of the Scriptures. God means to convey not only information, but the tone, the emotion, the perspective of the author. So when you read Moses, you get his emotions. And you read the psalmists, and you see how they're writing. And they write different from Peter. And Peter writes different from Ezra. And Ezra writes different from Paul. But in all this, you can get a taste for each author. It's beautiful. We saw, for example, Paul, and he's writing to the Philippians, and we see his anguish. I don't know if I'm going to depart. I would love to depart and be with the Lord, but it's more profitable for me to stay with you. That's not a robot. It's not a typing machine. It's a man with his affections and feelings and emotions, his background. You see Isaiah, and he sees the Lord in a vision. And what does he say? Woe is me! There's no robotic writing. They're real men with real affections. And being at the same time carried along by the Spirit of God to write exactly what God wants them to write. Each writer had a different style, different background, different personality, and God mysteriously, mysteriously governed their thinking and writing process so that without violating their humanity, the result was the Word of God, exactly what the Holy Spirit intended them to say. And then we come to the extent of inspiration. How much of the Bible is inspired? Yeah, in this church we believe in the plenary and the verbal inspiration of the Scriptures. And that's important. 
Because there are different types of view of inspiration. And some people are going to say, yeah, the Bible is inspired in religious things, not in scientific things. And then they start creating a canon inside the, the canon of scriptures. Plenary, the plenitude, the fullness, means that everything in the Bible is God's word. We may not pick and choose within scriptures regarding one part as God's word and another part as merely human writings. And verbal inspiration means that every single word, not only the ideas or concepts, but every word is from God himself. That's why there is no red letter Bible. Truly. Do you know the red letter Bible? Where you have the words of Jesus there. Think about inspiration of scriptures. All, all the Bible is God's word. And we are talking here about the autographs, the original manuscripts. We're not talking about your English version that you have, okay? Even though it's a very faithful, trustworthy copy, that's not what you're talking about. So I'm just being very brief here. This is a massive subject. It's always hard to know how much you say and where to stop because these things you need to go home and study more. And I would love to recommend some books for you. But it's of primary importance to understand the inspiration of the Scriptures. And that's what leads to what you're going to see throughout this series, the diversity and the unity of the Scriptures. It's the doctrine and reality of the inspiration of the Word of God that allows us to search for and behold the unity and coherence of the Scriptures. All the different authors, you have Job and Ruth and Malachi and Isaiah, Nehemiah, Chronicles, Samuel, Jude, Philippians, First and Second Timothy, Proverbs. And you might look at this and say, those are random. Who put these things together? But when you understand that he has one author, God himself, that's his book, then we have the duty to find the coherence and the unity among all these diverse writings. Matthew Barrett, he writes, If all Scripture is breathed out by God, then Scripture cannot be an anthology. Do you know what an anthology is? All the random collection of all different authors that have nothing to do with one another, great writings that are not connected to each other. If all Scripture is breathed out by God, then Scripture cannot be an anthology of human literature, nor can it be just a collection of human religious experience about God. Rather, the whole of Scripture stands united by a single and primary author, God. Rather than a collection of men's highest thoughts about God, the Christian Scripture is God's self-communication to humanity about who He is and what He has done to redeem a lost race in Adam. Inspiration guarantees that the canon's many stories tell one story. There is a single story to be told because there is a single divine author who has declared himself to be its architect and creator. He is not only the main actor of the drama of redemption, 
but the drama script writer. Amen? So we must expect an overall unity of the Bible. And I think that's frustrating for so many people as they read the Bible and they read Leviticus and they're lost in Leviticus. Why why is he here? Numbers. Why is book of Numbers here? How is that connected to the Gospel of Matthew? I know your pain. Some of you are agreeing. Some of you are lying like, oh no, I never think these things. There is one author, one story, and we have the duty of seeking the coherence of all these books. And as I said in the beginning, it's sad how so many Christians read the Bible as a newspaper. And you, you know a newspaper, just randomly looking at articles, different, oh, here, oh, interesting, turn the page, a different article that has nothing to do with that. Then turn the page, oh, that's the sports section, oh, good, okay. No, the Bible, there is a coherent message, a unified message. The unity and coherence of the Scriptures do not, does not deny the fact that there is a diversity in the Bible. The diversity is beautiful. This diversity makes the, the Scriptures beautiful. Just like God, diversity in unity, three persons, three different persons in one God. So, and here is a little bit of the diversity in the Bible. Behold the diversity of authors. More than 30 different authors from different places. Some of the authors were kings, others were priests, some were pastors, shepherds, some were prophets, some were, we have one who is a physician. We have Pharisees, military generals, we have Nehemiah who was a cupbearer for a king, and so on. Now think about the different genres of Scripture. We have legal material, narrative, proverbs, poetry, prophecy, apocalyptic literature, gospels, letters. How about the different places where the Scripture was written from? The wilderness, Mount Sinai, inside caves. Remember David, he's hiding and writing Psalms. Inside prisons in Babylon, Palestine, Rome, Persia. How about the island of Patmos? How about the hundreds of topics that we have in the Bible? Farming, parenting, stewardship of money, stewardship of our body, stewardship of time, how to work. Over three million letters written in Hebrew, Greek, and a little portion of Aramaic. And yet, all this diversity, you have one author behind, one message, one plan of salvation, and one Savior, who is Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of the unity and the diversity of the Scriptures. And that's only because of divine inspiration. Because we have a book that comes from God Himself. No other books like this book. No other books like this book. The inspiration demands from us honor, reverence, awe, respect. Because we have a book that's unlike any other book. The author of Hebrews says, The Word of God is what? Living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. 
piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is living and active. Have you experienced that in your life? Have you experienced that in your life? The Scriptures are alive. Amen? It was Martin Luther who said, This book is alive. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands to take hold of me. And that's true. And my prayer is that we also will run towards the Scriptures. Run to embrace and behold the beauty and the power of this book. No other book can change lives like this one here. And that's why everything that we do in this church is grounded in this book here. That's the ultimate authority of this church. Because that's the only book that God has given us from His own throne room. Father, we stand in awe that You'd be so kind to us, that You'd create us, and after the fall, still speak to us. And not only speak to us, but preserve Your writings. Thank You for a book that's alive because it speaks of the living Christ. Lord, I pray that You truly run after us and take hold of us so that we may experience, just like the psalmist, how delightful is Your Torah, Your instruction. Better than honey and gold. So help us, Lord. Help us as we walk through this journey to see how beautiful how coherent, how majestic is your word. We need your help. We praise you and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.